Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today's review is of the cautionary Hollywood tale Starry Eyes, which is currently streaming on Tubi TV. Written and directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmeyer, we meet struggling starlet Sarah, played by Alexandra Esso, who finds herself entering into a deadly agreement in exchange for stardom. But as we quickly learn, the cost of success comes at a high price. And to help me make my way through the hell that is Hollywood is a multi-talented writer who's contributed to the likes of Nightmare on Film Street, as well as the host of the horror-centric Bloody Blunt Cinema Club podcast, Devon Taylor. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, thank you for having me. It's it's always such a nice uh, switch up. Like this is my first time being on like a different podcast that's like not mine in like a good minute. So it's like it feels more relaxed. I'm I'm ready to go. I'm super excited. I love this movie so fucking much. Can I cuss? I didn't ask before. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things I should uh, I should start mentioning earlier on is that uh, swears and spoilers are more than welcome on Daily Horror Habit. So no worries there. There we go. But uh, before we kind of dive into today's film, Starry Eyes, uh, let's talk like your horror history. What was the first horror movie you remember having kind of a profound effect on you for uh, better or worse? Yeah, so I mean, I'm one of the people that had that early start to horror. I had the cool uncle and uh, my mom who were both into horror movies and, you know, showing me movies that maybe I shouldn't have seen as early of an age as I should have. But, you know, that's okay, I feel like. You know, you jump in early and then it kind of desensitizes you, you know? And I remember, so I started watching horror movies when I was seven. And I remember like the first batch that I that I had. And then, so like I have two movies that like kind of made like the big impact on me. And like one of them was whenever I was seven, I watched The Fly. Oh, and <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Isn't that yeah. just like, oh, okay. Um, but it was like, I had, I had like seen Nightmare on Elm Street and I really dug it. And then like I had seen some other horror movies and then that was the one where my uncle was like, okay, if you're, you're serious about this horror stuff, like I'll give it to you then, you know? And so I watched The Fly and I just remember just being so enamored by like the beauty of it, but also how disgusting it was like the body horror is just so gross and like and but then also at the like but then at the heart of it you had this like amazing performance between Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis who had this just like phenomenal chemistry together so it was like you know I was like watching it and I'm you know I didn't appreciate that stuff until a little bit later I guess you know the character stuff and like how tragic of a story this is and like honestly it's one of the best love stories in horror in my opinion but Absolutely. I didn't get that. Obviously, it was just like the shockingness of the body horror because it was like you didn't want to watch it or look at it, but you did. You know, like it was just like you, you couldn't look away. And just I always remember the scene whenever, um, whenever you know, uh, Seth is feeling himself and he had just gotten into a fight with Gene, uh, with Gene Davis's character. And then so he goes out and he's trying to impress this one chick at bar and he decides to arm wrestle this guy. And, you know, the guy's big and everything. And this arm wrestle's going back and forth. And then you're like watching it and you just see both of their arms start sweating a bunch, like just uh, profusely sweating. I'm like, what is this? And then just he snaps the dude's arm, his forearm, and just that image. I remember I would just like my eyes got so big and I was just like, whoa this is just this is insane so like 
that was like a moment that just like really like has just been ingrained in my brain like that image and like that kind of scene and i'm just like oh i can't wait to like make something like that <laughs> that's definitely that cronenberg detail right that including the forearm sweat and like just their faces and the visceral before you like even he rips the guy's hand off basically it's like just seeing them exerting themselves to that level it's this gross way too familiar uh shot with these two characters and yeah that was definitely one of the films too that stood out to me as a kid and i saw that at way too young of an age and it was at the point too where before i even saw the movie I saw that segment on like one of those clip shows that they used to have yeah, on Sci-Fi yeah. Channel where it's like top 100 horror moments or whatever like that. And so without any of the context of like what the fly actually was, I saw that scene and I was just like, what the fuck is this? Because all I knew Jeff Goldblum was as a kid before that was uh, Jurassic Park, obviously. And so I was like, oh, this might be kind of like that. It's about science somewhat. <laughs> and then seeing him rip this dude's hand off basically and i'm just like um this is this is gonna stick with me for a while that is not the dr ian malcolm that you knew <laughs> <laughs> right exactly it kind of just redefined my uh my image of him and kind of at the same time as horrifying as that scene is getting that small little clip it kind of like nestled its way into my brain where it's just like i have to seek this out i have mm -hmm. to find out this movie and get the rest of the context but uh fortunately for my seven-year-old self i didn't end up finding the movie until a little later i don't know if i could have handled the uh extremes that that film goes to at such a young age yeah it's like but what i've realized is like the ones that i saw whenever i was like super young and like you know those are the ones that like you know i still have certain ones like like the main trio that i started off with was the fly and nightmare on elm street and cube and like those trio, I still rewatch those three movies consistently and love them. And then it's like, you know, as I've watched them over time and as I've grown my knowledge about filmmaking and things like that, you know, you come to appreciate the different things. So like, that's what I appreciate, I guess, about being able to like start early. I, you know, had one take, but then I grow into another take. And like, that kind of is like my other, like my other big film is American Psycho. And that was a movie that, once I saw it and like kind of realized that like horror could be more than just, you know, shock value scares and like there's more than just the fear. Like, you know, you can tell the story through the visual fear, but then there's also like you, you see this incredible character work and this character study done on Patrick Bateman, American Psycho, and the way that Christian Bale's performance came in. And then that's a movie I've seen, I don't know how many times. And then even still like recently covering on the podcast, I like, I started to appreciate even more new things about it. Like most recently, I was like really looking into the editing because I've been doing a lot more video editing. So it was like every time I rewatch it, just like, you know, imprint something else. And like, and if anybody, you know, follows me on Twitter, like you see me everything, American Psycho GIFs and like all, all the references are all there. Um, my like first like real website that I made like as a creator um, was like American Psycho themed because it was just like my horror aesthetic, you know? So it's like, that's the other one that's just like, m like made this just like crazy lasting impression on me. Right. And those are also the films that I think when you're soup, when you're way too young to be watching them, probably for the first time, that shocking imagery is what sticks with you. And then when you come back and revisit it, you get to appreciate whether it's like the Gina Davis, uh, Jeff Goldblum love angle and kind of just the tragicness of that whole mm -hmm. arc in the fly 
obviously going back revisiting as a teen or an adult when you can kind of grasp those different concepts and things a little better. And then also like American Psycho, you can kind of dig a little bit more into the the fact that he is like an unreliable narrator, right? You can kind of mm-hmm. deep dive into that more rather than initially when you see that at probably too young of age, it's like, it's Christian Bale running around naked with a chainsaw. Like that's what sticks with you, but then you're kind of <laughs> deciphering a lot more of his reality, but also our perception of different characters' realities and kind of the more satirical nature of that film, which I mean, that's one of my favorite films ever. And I think it's the rare example of a film that, a film adaptation that's actually better than the novel that it's based off of. Oh yeah, oh yeah, because like, you know, the novel, the characterization of Patrick Bateman is completely different in that when it came through in the film without Patrick, or without Christian Bale's performance. So it was just like, you know, and it's layers upon layers. And I realized that like on this most rewatch too. And it's like, you know, American Psycho is too smart for 13-year-old Devon, and it's still too smart for 26-year-old Devon. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, definitely a film, though, that I look forward to revisiting every single time. Because, again, I'm talking about, like, the different layers that are in that film. But, I mean, that's kind of just what I've appreciated the older I get in revisiting a lot of films that, again, like, the shockingness of them or the graphic imagery of them and whatnot, like, really stood out to me at an early age. And yet in revisiting them for the first time in five, 10, maybe even 15 years for some of these movies and just seeing them through obviously a new lens, yeah. a new understanding of different things. I mean, that's what I love so much. Like my friends give me shit all the time for, oh, why don't you watch something new? You just rewatch the same things or yeah. this or that. And I'm like, well, actually at this point, it's basically an entirely new movie in a certain sense. Like, you know, the outcome, you remember the bits and pieces that were, um, that stood out to you as a kid and yet there's this whole new kind of like the curtain has been pulled back essentially on the film in a way. Yeah. Like it's hard for me to describe to people, but like, I have a very like similar feeling. Like, I mean, I always, obviously I love the initial first watch of a film and like the first things that you get with it and all those emotions, it's a completely different experience, but it's like, I love rewatching movies like so much. Like, I don't spend, you know, I'd rather spend my time rewatching the things that I know I love and then trying to find new things in it. I'd rather spend my time doing that than just like watching a, like, you know, movie that I'm pretty sure is gonna be shitty or a movie I'm pretty sure I'm not gonna enjoy. I'm not gonna waste my time watching those movies because that just doesn't do anything for me versus like rewatching always does something more for me. And like, we'll get into that with Starry Eyes because I mean, I've seen it a lot of times and like I just have movies like that and like you know and like now in the past year I've watched way more movies than you know I have in the previous years and I think most people have obviously and it's like you know I I like take notes on movies whenever I'm watching even if I'm not watching it for the podcast I still take notes sometimes just because like I don't know you know because I like digging I'm a, I, I like digging into the movie and, and like you know, there's just something about rewatches that, like, you know, can really do that. And it's weird in horror, I think, because, like, oh, if you rewatch a horror movie, is it going to scare you the same? Is it going to have the same effect? You know what's going to happen. But that's where it's like, that's where I'm not dissecting the horror as much on those rewatches. Then I'm kind of trying to look for the storytelling angles, the themes, and stuff like that. And, you know, rewatch it like I'm rewatching any other film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And kind of just the construction that ultimately you're sort of blind to on an initial viewing of something because it's all fresh but then once you've seen like a movie that 
couple, my buddies and I rewatch constantly is like Hereditary. That's one of our favorite movies. And it's like, once you get past the shocking nature of that movie the first time you watch it with that conclusion, it's still just as shocking because in revisiting it, we all appreciate, oh, we pick up on this and that and how it's structured around that big conclusion that makes it hit for us the same way it does like the first time we saw it to a certain extent. And just finding the kind of Easter egg that Ari Aster is layering through that film that makes his scares hold up in a way that it's not just shock value. It's not just kind of, oh, let's pop something gory up just to blow people away. It's like, no, if you can appreciate all these different layers that go into that big conclusion, it really does have a timeless quality to it that definitely highlights uh, other horror films that can't possibly manage that sometimes. <laughs> yeah, like if you can if you can layer a score or, or if you can layer a scare, like that is something that you can like something really special into a horror film because like you said like because i mean i've seen movies that like i'll see a scene then like the second time it'll hit me even harder because i'll already know like some of the emotional you know subtext underneath it or like knowing that it's like preceding something else that's coming you know sometimes it can even hit you like even harder and it's 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 super cool like i i didn't go to film school and stuff you know so re-watching films the way that I do it that's that's my film school that's me studying is what I tell people they're like how do you watch so many movies all the time I'm like I'm studying like this, right. is, this is I, it's important okay yeah this is not something this is uh very different than when you watch Netflix after work and you're texting or tweeting throughout the entire film like what we're doing is very different than what you're doing <laughs> it's serious shit yeah um but I think going off that and transitioning kind of into starry eyes this is a film that, this was a first time watch for me, um, and I enjoyed it overall. It's definitely one of those films that I can see a lot of people, or people that are not as kind of in tune with uh, indie horror, or horror that kind of defies the traditional uh, genre tropes angle and things like that. Um, so I'm curious, what about it stands out to you as a, for a film that you've seen countless times, like you said? So... I think the first time I watched it was in like 2016, which was a couple of years after it was released. And you know, that works with a lot of horror films as you know, sometimes they're not appreciated until a little bit later. And even still this film didn't really start like getting like more praise amongst the horror community until the past couple of years, really. Like then I started seeing people talk about it more and you know, putting it on lists and things like that. And yeah, because that, that is the thing that I tell a lot of people with horror and like that's around the time that I was kind of transitioning my like film watching like to more centric horror. Like, you know, I, I love all films in general, but that's whenever I like around that time was whenever I was like really trying to focus in on like, you know, putting horror into my persona, you know, I guess. And so I was I was watching them a lot differently. And then it was also like, it was whenever I started realizing like, oh, okay, a lot of the horror that comes to theaters, you know, isn't always the best. There's kind of, you know, you see the difference between big budget horror and smaller horror. So around that time was whenever I really started watching like independent films and like learning how to find independent films. It's a lot easier now even because we have so many more streaming uh, options. So it's even in like apps that you can type in the movie and it'll tell you exactly which app you can watch it on. Like we didn't have that then. Then it was like, you know, still 2016 internet. So it's not like we were like prehistoric or anything, but you actually had to put in, you actually had to put in the effort to find some of these movies. So whenever I found this, I was just like, oh my gosh, like I found something just like completely different 
and it's interesting i saw it after i watched the neon demon the neon demon is probably my favorite movie but at the time i didn't really like it i didn't like the neon demon as much as i did and then this one i was like oh this is what that movie was trying to do and and but what really brings me into it though and the connection between those two movies is i relate to the i love the subgenre of horror where it's you know chasing fame like ambitious like flawed ambitious protagonists you know going through horrors to try to achieve what they want and trying to figure out if it is truly what they want or not you know i'm an aspiring filmmaker and i moved out to la two years ago i've been planning it for a long time so it was like again this was like kind of one of those movies that would always be on my brain whenever i was kind of thinking of what my plan was going to be when i got here uh what it was going to be like how hard it was going to be but then also kind of what it takes though like what i need internally to make it like and it's like you can almost say that like do you have to you have to become someone else or in this case something else you know to make it to where you're trying to go so like i've always really flocked to movies like this the neon demon recently watched um phantom of the paradise fell in love with that because it's another similar film so it's like i really love those like chasing ambition especially in los angeles like horror films yeah uh so i had the similar experience i'd seen neon demon before this and as soon as i finished watching star as i was like oh this is what neon demon was trying to do uh neon demon i think was definitely a film it's a film that i need to revisit because it's been a couple years since i've seen it but at the same time it had a lot of style and substance to it that i think obviously refin is notorious for and i often enjoy it but i think what i like more about starry eyes is that it captures the angle of chasing stardom or fame but it shows like what happens once you've been here for a while in la and you're not making a whole lot of traction right whereas if i believe in Neon Demon, she's just arriving and she's like, oh, I'm brand new here. I just got here. I don't know yep. anybody. All of these things. Whereas Starry Eyes is a lot bleaker of a portrayal of somebody that has made that big move. They've jumped into the pond as it were. And yet we're not getting any, she's not getting any traction. She's at that day job that's paying the bills that keeps her there. She's not destitute or anything, but at the same time, the opportunity is almost like being not squandered, but it's like, she's there. That's supposed to be the hard part. And then my career is supposedly supposed to take off. And yet we see that she falls into the scenario that she's in because she is out of options. She doesn't have anything going for her and kind of getting to see them at that point rather than the whole, oh, I need to meet people. I need to do this. I need to do that. Where there's a lot, it's much more hopeful when you just arrive, I would assume like, oh, hey, I'm going to go out the city. The uh, opportunities are limitless. And yet in this film, it's much more bleak where it's like, okay, the hard part is supposedly over is just getting started and established. And yet now what do I do? That whole idea to me, I think it really presents the film starry eyes as being just oppressive from kind of beginning to end. And Mm -hmm. whether all the kind of craziness that goes on in the later half of the film, which we'll get into before that even happens, it doesn't seem like she's very happy, obviously in her current predicament. And just from the people that are in her life to the realities of her employment and all these things, it just really does seem like, okay, when is something gonna happen and how long do I have to wait for that to happen? And for for me, like that as a writer who 
like wants to would love to be able to like write for a living but still has to have a day job mm-hmm. and do that on the mm-hmm. side like that is a situation that I can really relate to and I mean I'm sure you can relate to a certain extent because you're a writer as well like this idea that yeah. okay how long do I have to juggle these things before the thing that I actually want is gonna support me for the rest of my or support me Oh, yes. I mean, that is like, I mean, I'm feeling that more this year than I ever have before. Like, that's like what's even like what I love about like revisiting this movie. And like, this will be the last comparison to Neon Demon because I could do a whole parallel like comparison, which I did. That was the premiere episode of Blade Blunt Cinema Club. But like I what I came to appreciate about the different the two of them is like how they do approach these two so differently. But like, it's the same thing kind of in the inverse like you said it's like in neon demon we're watching our protagonist get sucked into the world and go down that rabbit hole and it's more of a and with his style and filmmaking which i obviously love it's it's a it's more of a moody film you know it's a it's a moody you just kind of sit in it and you escape into that world it's more about the world than it is the characters versus starry eyes it's very much yeah more bleak she's already been sucked into that world and now this is strictly following Sarah and like you know this film wouldn't function without Alex Esso's like amazing performance in this film of really being able to get into her shoes and yeah that relatability of I've been in the service industry for 10 years that's what I do to support myself you know while I'm trying to make this art shit happen so it's like again yeah I've been there like I've I've been in her shoes and then it's like you know I had been kind of getting to that point of, like you said, like, when can I, when do I, when can I stop juggling this? When can I just do what I want to do? And then, you know, this crazy shit happened in the world, get laid off of work. And then I'm, you know, have the entire week to do creative things. And all I've been doing for the past eight months is just like being creative and, you know, and like, you know, it's hard now, like as, you know, getting towards the end of unemployment and, I'm like kind of, you know, trying to figure out where to go forward now as we don't know what's going to happen in 2021. But I've gotten this taste of being able to be a freelance worker and, you know, um, do creative things full time. So it's like, I don't want to go back. I can't go back. So, yes, I would sell my soul so I don't have to go back to this. Like, yes, Astraeus, take me. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the best testament to this film. And again, we're not going to keep harping on like Neon Demon and this and the comparisons, but... I didn't feel any of these things. And if we had watched Neon Demon, I don't think we would have talked this long about what we're talking about had it been on Neon Demon because I got none of that in Neon Demon. And like you said, uh, Alex Esso is so easy to want to see succeed. Like you are fully in her shoes and you want nothing but the best for her. And it's interesting how the film begins largely with her being perceived as like a victim essentially. And it's somebody that you can be very sympathetic to in that like, hey, this is her predicament. I wouldn't wish this predicament on somebody and I want to see her succeed. She's very likable. She's very shy and timid versus some of her friend group that we meet early on who are just kind of like very catty and what I would assume a lot of like up and coming LA actor scenes might be like. People are competing. There's kind of like that mean girls backstabby vibe to everybody that you meet or who you live with. And she is very likable because she is at such odds with them or the version of her that we see early on is so at odds with that granted that changes later in the movie but i think it's really smart the way that the film is structured in that the first half of the film she is very much somebody you're rooting for 
And we, ha because of our perception of her, we were talking about, uh, I was talking about unreliable narrator earlier with American Psycho. And in this, it's not so much an unre unreliable narrator, but we only know stuff about her based on what she shows us, what she essentially like acts out and the perception that she puts out there. And then we learn really who she truly is later in the film. And it's a very interesting contrast, almost like I've been tricked into rooting for this person when at the end of the day, like we see what she's truly capable of. And I mean, it's a credit to her performance because she's absolutely phenomenal pulling that off. And it doesn't kind of feel like this. It is a jarring shift, but it doesn't feel art. Uh -huh. It doesn't feel artificial. It feels kind of very organic. Like it's the pacing of her real personality coming out is paced incredibly well. It's not kind of just oh, one day she wakes up and all of a sudden I'm going to rip your head off. It's kind of very slow and gradual to the point that by the time we get to that point in the film, it really does shock. It shocked me in a way that I was not expecting it to. Yeah. Like, I mean, you, you really hit the nail on the head, like for your first time of like, yeah, like I love seeing, you know, her friends. Like, I mean, being out in LA for two years, I've met all those people. Like, you know, it's, it, it is a stereotype and I won't say it's like, you know that's everyone in LA like a lot of movies portray however there are times where it's like you're hanging out with a bunch of your artist friends and all everybody's doing is talking about themselves like they're not they they pretend like they're intrigued about what you're doing but it's just a segue to talk about what they're talking about you know and so like yeah you're rooting against you say fuck all of our friends I hope they all die and they do so it's like when they do you're just like yes like please and yeah everything has just been beating her down into you know this this position and like as we know when we watch like other possession movies that that's like you know a standard thing is like you know they kind of beat the person down like physically but then also in their like soul and psychologically to get them to accept this fate however with this it's like you you go back and forth questioning how much of it was them luring her in and how much of it was her wanting that or being her willingness to do it you know it's like we see in the various stages like her apprehension or her opportunities to walk away and forget the whole thing you know so and even when she is getting manipulated she still has the control like throughout most of the movie she has the control the whole time so it's like every time I go back it's like yeah like is this exactly what she wanted? Did she get what she wanted by the end? Or, yeah, or is this just, you know, Hollywood claiming yet another soul? You know, so it's like, you can really go back and forth, but Alex Esso was just so great in her performance of like the pre-transformation during and after of, yeah, like you said, as you like really see your true self come out and you know, in a weird way, the, the weird fucking Astraeus film pictures, they are the ones that got her to do that. They got her to come out of her shell. And cause she already kind of had some of that in her, as we see at the beginning of a film, like you said, she's like kind of portrayed as a victim. Like she's, you can tell she's not doing the best mentally. She suffers from, I always say this wrong, trichotillomania, which is the thing where people pull their hair out to inflict like pain on themselves whether that is to feel something or to punish themselves or, you know, whatever it is, we see that instantly, you know, before that first audition with Sarah. So it's like, yeah, there, you have nothing but the choice, but to like be on her side, no matter what's going to happen in this movie. And we've kind of seen 
other movies take that route since then, like a movie like Joker that, you know, gets you to kind of feel in that in that sense for him to where it's like, am I rooting for him to make this change, you know? But it's obviously, it's like, you want them to make the change, just not that change. <laughs> <laughs> not so drastically uh, into what they become. But yeah, I mean, Starry Eyes largely serves as basically an allegory for like Hollywood preying upon and exploiting young women. Um, and mm -hmm. something that I really picked up on at, in thinking about the film after watching it, which makes it even more disturbing, it's not, they didn't pick her, Sarah, because like she's pretty or she's a certain type. They picked her because of the fact that she is unstable. This idea that the only, she gets dismissed after her first audition for this film, Silver Scream, which she assumes is gonna be like her big break. And she even meant to go back to like her friends being like the stereotypical LA uh, actors or art scene people. It's like, she tells them that and they're like, oh, but you probably won't get that. Or, oh, that's like some shitty horror movie kind of thing. They're very dismissive of her immediate yeah. uh, prospect at success, right? And so the fact that she gets picked, not because of her abilities, but of the fact that she is someone unstable and to the point where she's literally willing to like hurt herself to a certain degree by ripping out her hair and throwing a tantrum in a very public place, it's just, it makes it even more kind of just sad. sinister. Yeah, well, it yeah. definitely makes it sad. And it makes it more believable for me too. This is something that I was really impressed with in that the film doesn't go full supernatural or it doesn't mm -hmm. kind of go completely out of bounds. Like it is a very kind of satirical premise, this idea that there is a demon worshiping cult running Hollywood, right? That's kind of yeah. a satirical take on it. And uh -huh. yet a majority of the things that happen in the film are not super fantastical up until like the rebirth at the very end. And I think mm -hmm. that that contrast is what makes this film work so much for me in that she's not kind of exuding some type of special powers or abilities early on. It's like she's being picked because she's unstable. We can exploit that. How are we going to exploit that? And it shows and it I mean, it garners more sympathy for her also throughout that mm -hmm. first half of the film in a way that like had she kind of just been this normal girl or normal aspiring actress who's getting picked by a cult because like she's overtly beautiful or something to that extent. Mm -hmm. That's a little more kind of just generic or what you would expect. Whereas in this, it is very believable, again, contrasted to this kind of satirical overarching uh, demonic cult preying upon actresses. Whereas, hey, this is a girl that is mentally unstable to a certain degree. We can exploit that. That's like a very real world thing that, I mean, you read about it in horrible stories in the news and things like that, whether it be Hollywood or other situations. Mm -hmm. So to ground the film in that, it makes this work for me in a way that um, I was not expecting it to, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I'm really, I'm really glad they didn't try to over explain, you know, the, the rules of the satanic cult and the ritual, what is actually needed of the vessel or uh, what is actually happening with this possession. Are they being possessed by, you know, we don't need any of that because we are just so much more invested in Sarah's mindset. And like you said, it's like, I've seen a lot of people comment about this film maybe being overly bleak and and it's like yes but then that's what makes it real yeah like I've seen a lot of people say like that this movie is overly bleak to a point and I mean it is but then that's why it feels so much more real even with the fantastical elements 
because of that, because we were able to buy into Sarah's sadness. And and it's not even just in her performance too. Like I've realized like in the way that they wrote her character, like I said, like I, I've been like uh, something I've been looking at whenever I watch films with a female protagonist is thinking about their agency. Like what kind of separates a good female protagonist from a bad one. And it's like, you know, if you make sure that that protagonist keeps her agency and like like has the control over the situation even while being manipulated like it it always keeps you in their corner and that's what they do with sarah and like the way that they present her like the way that they shoot her because like alex esso is she's super gorgeous like the the type that you would think that would have been succeeding in hollywood you know and even though she is like very gorgeous and stuff they'll put her at times where they like frame her to where it's what she sees herself as you know she sees the flaws she sees herself kind of you know not full of life and you know and they kind of present that like when she's around her friends too about like how much more introverted she is than her friends as well and then later as we kind of see the progression of her wearing more flattering things that like kind of accentuate her more, her putting more thought into her looks, but then that being torn away with the transformation and then being built back up once again. So it's like the they they did so much with the character of Sarah and it, it really impresses me like every time. And the and then having that in with like the Hollywood um, production company angle and the scene where it's like we see her like have to you know first he tries to uh, you know make a move on her and then she leaves and she gets out of the situation but then she's like as she's regressing she goes you know what maybe I should have let him sexually assault me or I should just give him what he wants and like when we see her go back and then do it then it's like so it's like you can't get upset about this portrayal on the screen because it is her choice but then also it's like but then it's like you see the big picture and if this movie would have came out in 2017 2018 when like the me too stuff was getting hot if this would have came out around that time i mean and that's whenever i did see this movie start popping back up into conversations was when people were talking about um me too and the whole thing what's wrong with the corrupted industry that's what gave this movie like second legs again so it's like it's the so much going on ah, i love it <laughs> there you know based on just the basic premise from looking from the outside in on the film i mean i assumed it was going to be a lot more straightforward not necessarily have these layers and yet these little decisions that they make instead of them going right to the producer kind of trying to make a pass at her and then she immediately accepts Right. If it had gone that route, that's exactly what I would have expected just because of all of the, like you said, watching this film for me for a first time po or post or during currently Me Too, um, I would have assumed that that is the direction they would have gone. And yet the idea that, again, to come back to how just how sinister the portrayal of this somewhat familiar topic is, it really shows how this big industry puts its hooks into people. And I mean, it's almost as if like, it's somebody getting somebody addicted to drugs and they have to keep coming back to them, right? It's this idea that 
I am the gatekeeper. I think he even the producer even says that at one point. He's like, I, he does. Yeah, he says like I have to open the gate for you to that's, or something to that extent. That's exactly what he says as he is receiving the most uncomfortable blowjob set to film. Right. Like that. Yeah. That scene is maybe one of the scariest parts of this whole film, and we got people getting their face smashed in with dumbbells. So, right. I mean, yeah. When that's the like grossest scene, it's just like, mm-hmm. Ugh. yeah, it has. I mean, again, like it when it has that extra connotation, this idea that, OK, there's the shock value of the act of seeing the act being performed. And yet it's all the stuff in the background, I think, that for me makes it stand out like you've seen scenes like that in film before. But it is the background of the implication and the reality that if she doesn't do this, she's going to go back to the sort of like career limbo that she's been in and we see she is not handling that well and it's interesting too kind of in going in transitioning into this idea that she has always had the capacity for or the I suppose yeah the capacity for like becoming what she becomes when we see more of her personality and it's revealed it really is this idea that she is willing to do anything to become this person and of course this is extrapolated uh, Mm -hmm a lot in the finale when we kind of have the slaughter of her friends. Um, But I mean, again, you can't, you have to keep kind of like in your mind's eye at all times. Sarah doesn't get forced into anything in the film. And it really is what makes this stand out from kind of the generic angle that I thought the film was going to take. I thought it was going to be, oh, she doesn't have a choice at any point. She has to do these things. She's literally being forced into everything. And the fact that she has free will in the film that she willingly even if persuaded into giving that guy a blowjob like that makes it that much more sinister i think again just like putting the hooks into this character Mm -hmm. and the hooks stay in the entire film once they're in they never get extracted at any turn because in reality she has the choice to extract them before she obviously Mm -hmm. begins to transform and yet she chooses not to and i think that's something that on a rewatch i'll pick up on a little more earlier on this idea that She's not destitute. She works a shitty job. We all work shitty jobs for the most part. Like, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? This idea, we all have a goal and stardom looks like different things for everybody. Not all of us want to be a big Hollywood actor, but stardom Mm -hmm. in a certain field that we like or that we're interested in, like we all have those goals to a certain extent. And yet none of us really, or I shouldn't say all of us, but some of us, most of us hopefully don't kind of take the go to the extreme lengths that she does before obviously the film gets completely uh supernatural and whatnot or murderous rather yeah because i mean the third act is where it really becomes a horror movie you know that then in in what it is is like the the widmeyer and kolsch the directing duo behind this like that's where like their filmmaking came in is like you said they they could have went the easy way with a lot of this you know like we didn't have to have we didn't have to have a callback scene like because she does her audition you know and she doesn't get it she goes in the bathroom throws a tantrum and then the um the casting people are in the bathroom here do the tantrum they go oh wait come back and do that again and then that's so then they add to that audition scene you know they could have went straight into the weird but then they like kind of they like give it a moment to one make you just feel uncomfortable because like her audition is so cringe and yeah. <laughs> uh the guy that plays the, the the guy casting agent is the secret mvp of this movie i love his <laughs> delivery and just like mm-hmm. so dry yep. and he looks like a like ventriloquist dummy <laughs> he, like he he's so yeah. great 
and they don't even have names. I love that they don't have names either. Not important, you know? And then, so it's like we, we see that scene and then we see like the glimpse of Sarah kind of coming out. Cause like you said, it's, they found someone who's vulnerable, but then also already has this innate, you know, instinct in them that is waiting to come out. You know, they, they know that and then, so they see that. And then, so even before she meets the producer, it's like, okay, you're gonna come back for a callback. And then, so then they have that scene to kind of seep it in even more where they kind of play on those fears of Hollywood where it's, you go to an audition, they just ask you to start taking your clothes off and taking pictures of you. But then they flip the script in that scene and kind of show the flashes of what she's gonna become later, but then also her going from being uncomfortable, but then to giving into it another parallel scene with the neon demon because she finds herself in a photo shoot as well is you know so it's like she that that callback scene is like always so interesting to me whenever i rewatch it that's like again like this is before she even meets the producer and they've like really even seeped in like it's already there boiling you know she they were so it, it was almost easy for them and that makes it even more bleak where it's just like oh man we really didn't have to do much she kind of was willing to do everything you know yeah. and like that right there is like the sadness of it when you know that in real life there's an 18 year old girl that just moved to los angeles that is willing to do anything and that's like scary you know so it's like the the way that they just seep it in throughout the entire movie and like and and not that this movie doesn't have style either because like the, the very, like, the way that they shot L.A. and made it look so dark, because, like, if anybody's been to L.A. Yeah, like, if anybody's been to L.A., you know it's sunny all the time. Like, they do call it sunny L.A. for a reason. Like, they gave it this, like, really bleak tone. And then the music, the score is, like, this, like, very innocent-sounding, you know, like, almost, like, kind of adolescent, like, kind of lullaby-type deal, but then with a layer of sinister underneath it like kind of similar to uh, the Coraline score in a way um absolutely love the score and it gets just like more sinister like as the film goes on and then like by the third act when she's killing people and making the transformation it's like full-on electronic and like burr, burr, and it's like whoa like where did this come from and it's just like you know also going along with their transformation so you know great filmmaking on top of the writing and acting yeah, that's a fantastic point, especially like the score and that kind of transitions into what I was going to bring up and just the pacing of the film, right? The first half is very much kind of a slow burn in the sense that if you go into this thinking that this is going to be kind of a traditional horror movie, like you said, the second half of the film is when it becomes a horror film. And before it even kind of becomes that kind of slasher finale, if we'll say, not oh, finale, but kind of just the house, the house slaughter becomes a full on slasher. Before yep. that, we have that fantastic sequence of body horror. Like, I can't believe that more people don't give this movie credit or I guess in terms of the, the general conversation of body horror, this doesn't get brought up more. Just because of mm -hmm. her transformation is literally, in addition to like, we see very clearly that her soul itself is rotting in the way that she begins to treat other people. In mm -hmm. terms of like casting people aside, I think at one point she refers to supposedly her friends as being like cancer that's like rot making her rot and they're what's holding mm -hmm. her back from her stardom and all these things. In addition to like that, literally her body then begins to rot and she looks like she's literally decomposing to the point where like 
her hair's falling. Like she doesn't have to yank her hair out anymore because that shit's falling out by the clumps. It's all right. Yeah. The fingernails and the teeth and like, yeah, it's all there. Like I, I wrote an article for Nightmare on Film Street like a year and a half ago, and it was me breaking it down as a psychological body horror which it's like obviously when you think of body horror you obviously think the physical elements but like you said it's like her soul is literally rotting as she yeah becomes just like is snapping back at her shitty friends even her like one good friend you know like that's where and like having that is like where we like take that final step of like stripping that humanity from sarah because like that's like her friend is like the one thing that's like kind of anchoring her a little bit but then we take that away too and then that's when it makes the decision for you that okay we shouldn't we don't need to root for sarah anymore however we're going to because that slasher finale is oh so good so good and i think that again in talking about just the way that the film is constructed that slasher finale does not hit as hard had the film had an abundance of scares or overt examples of her having the capacity to do those things again even early on in the film, we see that the capacity for what she's truly capable of comes out slowly. It's basically like mm-hmm. IV drip to us the entire film. And yet we never see any kind of like physical examples of that other than when she's really sick and like she slaps her boss in the head. I think that's the first time yeah. she tries to fight anybody or has physical contact in a negative way with somebody. And so it makes that slasher finale that much more brutal and that much more shocking that it's almost as if like she goes to the house and we know that to a certain extent, like the cult for the transformation to take hold, she needs to do some type of sacrifice. I believe that's mm-hmm. what brings her to the house, right? Uh, yeah. Like when she goes back to the house. Yeah. When she goes back to the house to kill yeah. everybody. Yeah, it's not, or... it's not kind of spelled out for us, but I think there's the implication that they need some sort of sacrifice. I don't, I don't read it as a sacrifice. I kind of read it as part of the transformation. Like they kind of talk about that she has to destroy like every part of her former self in order to make this transformation. And that just includes her friends. Like not only is she shedding her physical self, her psychological being as well, but then she's like, I'm expunging anyone in my immediate world, you know, like, and that's kind of the way that I see it, but I mean, because I feel like she's kind of the sacrifice in that after the ritual, she's reborn and like that's a new Sarah now. So I so I kind of still see her as the sacrifice, but now she is this different Sarah. Right. So I, I guess I, I worded that poorly. She is the sacrifice and yet it's her shedding herself of elements of her past life when she was a person, which we learned she clearly is not going to be for much longer. Um, but what really makes the violence, I think, again, kind of stand out more in this film is just how grounded it is it's a gritty fucking gnarly portrayal of violence and i mean we've seen her falling apart but again she's like vomiting up maggots and stuff which it's like okay that is a little more in the realm of supernatural but at the same time the way that she kills people there's nothing supernatural about it it is so grounded and gritty like she's bashing people's faces in with dumbbells she's slicing them with knives and um, yeah, choking them out with a plastic bag, like manhunt style. I mean, it is super jarring compared to the kind of, again, the fantastical overarching theme of the entire film. Demons are running LA, right? It's kind mm-hmm. of, it's very fantastical. And yet the violence in the film is, I mean, it's sickening because of how grounded yeah. it is compared to the overarching kind of narrative. It's like, and that goes back to, again, like if they would have went the easy route, 
they would have given her some supernatural demonic powers to slaughter her friends and like that would have been the third act finale it would have been her already transformed and just like and it would have been uh like you know emotionless but because again yeah like you said like we have these supernatural elements but it doesn't matter it's like that is still sarah killing her friends it's not the cult doing it it's not their influence doing it that is sarah having to kill her friends with a dumbbell and like then the the one in the kitchen is like so grounded of like she doesn't know how to kill so like first she tries to like stab that doesn't work slashes her in the face again and that doesn't work and then has to put the plastic bag over her head like to like get it done again so like that is just like yeah so real like of course she's not gonna be able to kill on the first try but then she does that and then goes and kills the, with the dumbbell which is just like the 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 effects and the, that shot like oh man like it is just money every time. I love it. Yeah, the practical work is fantastic. And also, I mean, we really can't undersell just how phenomenal her makeup is when she is literally rotting. Like, you, I literally oh. do not want to look at her rotting. We talked about the fly earlier and like Jeff Goldblum <laughs> yeah. is rotting. And it's like in this, again, it has that grounded element where it looks like somebody that should have gone to the hospital like two or three months ago into some type of infection that's literally killing them. And it's not... It's gruesome, but it's it's not super unrealistic, you know? It looks like yeah. somebody that just has an illness that hasn't been treated. It's not like her head is caving in half or something super dramatic, drastic that doesn't look realistic. It looks like she's sick. And that, again, even though we've basically turned our back on feeling sympathetic for her to a certain extent, not as much in the beginning of the film, like... She looks like a girl that is sick, and there is some sympathy, I think, or it, at least it influences our perception of her doing these horrible things because it's like at a certain point I almost said is she doing these things because she's sick or is she doing these things these things because she really wants to and then of course obviously she's not being forced into doing anything when you stop and think about it but I think that that is something that it makes her whole situation sympathetic up until the end even though when you stop and think about it it's like no she had a choice she didn't have to kill four or five of her friends she chose to do that yeah, uh, I like totally didn't even think about that. She totally looks like a Brundle fly. Like yeah. I'm gonna put up a side. I'm gonna put up a side by side of them on Twitter because like <laughs> I'm seeing it in my brain already, and I was like, oh my gosh, like that is Seth's daughter. Right well, the finger, I mean, the fingernails alone, like <laughs> that yeah. has to be a callback to the fly. Like it has yeah. to be. Now yeah. that now that I'm thinking about it, like I'm sure it was, and and yeah, it's just like you. She looks just yeah, just so gross. But then you know. Alex Esso is still selling this performance like through that as well and then I mean but then and then like when she makes the transformation it's also like cool because like she doesn't they didn't like have to do anything really like you know like you think they're gonna transform her and she's gonna become even more gorgeous I mean she does like in a way but at the same time it's like really it's just like she just has this like glow to her it's still the same Sarah except now her eyes are green and her eyes are green and she's bald now. And um, and she does have um, some sort of power because she kills her roommate after the transformation. I guess that's like the final step, you know? Um, which is a really great and weird scene like of this like intimate like moment because they like kind of had that intimate moment like earlier in the film when they're laying in bed next to each other. And then it parallels that again. But yeah, like they just like made her kind of glow a little bit more and then they gave her a wig, but it still looks like her hair. 
So it's like, they really didn't have to do much again. Like they were just like, man, this has been the easiest catch we've had in years. Like she yeah. just walked straight through it for us, you know? And, and that's just like, I don't know. Like, again, it's like, I, and then some people are like, does that like perpetuate the idea? And it's like, no, that's where, you know, movies are smart like that on, because it's like, again, you, you see this and you are rooting for her, but even still, it's like, there's still a line, you know? So it's like you, and then you watch that person still cross that line and it's just like, you know, you, you feel it more. So it's like, I'm there for, it's like, yeah. Am I literally going to sell my soul to try and get fame? No, but I totally like am here for the metaphor of yeah. like I said at the beginning of the episode, like of becoming someone else or something else to like achieve that. I mean, you can understand it, right? Even though you yourself would not go to those extremes, you can understand it. It never feels like, oh, this is just kind of derivative of everything else and it's taking it to the extreme. The film basically deals in both sides of the extreme, lows and highs. And had it just been highs, obviously, then if she's just aggressive right out the gate and willing to like give up her soul and all these things, if she doesn't have those brief moments of restraint and like, hey, I'm not actually gonna do this, but then again, like we kind of said, those hooks are in there, so she is going to go back. That's a very realistic portrayal of the scenario. And I think, to your credit, again, like what you said about her transformation, how many films that wanted to tackle a similar subject or a similar kind of a, attempt at tackling a similar metaphor that they're trying to get across would have had her like have some type of monstrous augmentations to her body, right? Again, it's very subtle. It's, she has a shaved head. She's got this newfound glow about her. And she is very different, and you can tell that she's changed, and yet it's not kind of tapping into the fantastical uh, overarching elements of the film where it's like all of a sudden she's got horns or she's got a tail, she's got a hide or some shit like that. Like, no, we gave her a buzz cut and we kind of gave her this glow and it has the same effect. The idea that there's that brief display of her powers where she basically puts her roommate into a trance and utilizes and pray. She herself now is preying upon people. Like you said, mm -hmm. they have that brief moment of intimacy early in the film where they're lying next to each other in bed. And it's a very brief moment. I think it's like a two minute scene or something. And yet that is ultimately what she uses to control. In addition to like whatever kind of power she has, she's able to control her to put her in that vulnerable state and then to kill her. And I was, I was thinking like the decision to have her bite her on the mouth instead of on the neck. Initially, I was like, is she supposed to be a vampire of some sort? And then I was thinking like the, it's such a small decision to not have her bite her on the neck to kill her. And it again, plays into that grounded nature of, yeah, this is like, again, at the end of the day, it's a girl that's been exploited. Who's made the ultimate sacrifice to get stardom. And she's not really a monster. There's still some of her there, right? If she'd mm -hmm. bit her on the neck to kind of drain her blood, I feel like, oh, she's a, just a monster now. There's no semblance of her old self. And yet, I think to make her fully become a monster at the end of the film, it would kind of undercut a lot of the work that they did in portraying her as a very normal girl that mm -hmm. is relatable, I'm sure, to lots of people that want, like we said, that sort of stardom or chasing stardom, whatever that means for the individual. Yeah, like, I I see her, like, maybe not as, like, closer to, like, a succubus than a vampire. Right. You know, because now she has that, like, hypnotizing charm, and it's all about the allure now, and she just, like, she's glowing, kind of has. And 
and she's always like had that you know and it's like kind of just like okay now you're weaponizing you know your your sensuality in a way and that's you know presumably what she's gonna go on to do now she's gonna go on to have a lucrative career and also bite like lots of lips off and <laughs> you know and i feel like it was just like kind of i don't know it felt more intimate and sensual than about the neck and and i love how you say like you know we could have given her like yeah more of these like physical augmentations and stuff and there is like where you get like the positivity of like you know small budget um filmmaking because you know they just obviously didn't have the the money to do anything like that you know they had to keep everything in tight and that's where smaller budgets you know make creators get more creative like like the 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 budget for this movie is like tiny um like it's in like the like like double like not even in the six figures range like it's in a five figure range i'm pretty sure yeah, and I mean they they crowdfunded it on Kickstarter. I'm pretty sure, yep. right? So that yep. makes that totally makes sense. But I mean, having that restraint, though, even I mean, how many films have you and I probably watched over the course of our lives where people didn't have the budget and yet they they force it and they try to do something that is not within the means of their budget and it comes out looking like shit? Because <laughs> I mean, honestly, like there are so many films that I think try to outshoot their budget in a way that ultimately hurts the final product. And I think that it's very telling of this creative duo that they're like, hey, we're gonna be realistic about our budget and finding the smart alternative to getting that result in the end of the film that is ultimately more effective. And again, when we were talking about like layering your scares and things like that, had she had some kind of otherworldly augmentation to her body, it kind of would have just undersold all of the work that they did from the beginning of the film up until the point where her transformation is complete. Yeah, it's like let the let the characters and the story do the storytelling. You know, you don't need all that other stuff. I I forget what director said it, but he said directing is just creative problem solving. And that's like what you're constantly doing. So it's like when you have that small budget, it's like, yeah, like okay, I want this to happen. Okay, maybe I can't do that. Let's go to plan B. How can what do I have at my disposal to like make that happen? Like it's like that's funny because like one of me and my one of my creative partners that's like kind of something that we clash on a lot is we'll be writing something and then he'll get a little bit he, he's an actor more than a behind the scenes person so he like gets like a little bit more excited about you know like okay let's make it bigger bigger more angles cooler shots let's rig this up you know like and he like kind of gets ahead of himself and i'm like hey hey, hey we can't do that we, 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 we can't make that work, man, like right. as much as we want to. <laughs> like, so let's scale it back. Let's, we don't need all that. Like as long as what we are putting in the screen is mm-hmm. interesting, then it'll work. Like, you know, and you can get that in different ways, not just in having, you know, to be showy about it. So like, yeah, that's like, again, why I love just like independent filmmaking because it's, you have to think outside the box and that's what they do. And they come up with these just like solely unique films. and. Like, sorry, eyes. it's just mm, chef's kiss. <laughs> it definitely is. And I think that that is the testament again to this creative duo, right? They kind of tackled something that on paper, okay, we've probably heard of stories like this before, and yet they have the foresight and they had the creative dynamic between the two of them to kind of have those checks and balances in terms of reaching the story that they want to tell in a creative manner that is still realistic. It's still cognizant of the fact that, hey, we have some pretty strict limitations, it sounds like, in making this thing. And yet that ultimately putting in the work to find those 
avenues that are gonna let us tell the story we wanna tell and still within our budget and kind of the scope of the production, I mean, that's what makes this such a standout film. And it's one that, I mean, I'm really excited that you picked this film because it's one of those movies that it's like, yeah, it passes me by all the time on streaming and whatever, but it's like, oh, this came up or no, that came up. And it, it kind of is a film that for me, I think it was easy to fall to the wayside just because like I'd seen Neon Demon, which not to keep like comparing them, but I mean, that film shares similarities mm -hmm. to it. And obviously Neon Demon has a exponentially bigger budget. So I was, my thinking, which was clearly not, which was clearly flawed was like, oh, well that film probably couldn't do what this other film did better. And yet this mm -hmm. film Starry Eyes, I think if I were to recommend one or the other, even though they do things very differently and they both have strengths and weaknesses, I'd probably recommend Star Starry Eyes before Neon Demon. Cause like you, I had seen Neon Demon before um, and I, I mean, I went into this thinking, oh, is this just going to try to tell a story similar to that? And while they have some similarities, again, I think this film capitalizes on its potential in a way that Neon Demon, at least on my first watch, I'm doing a rewatch, um, didn't necessarily hit the mark for me as much as I thought it would. Yeah, it's like, yeah, that's that is what separates this film is you have that similar ideas some that's been done before but as long as you do it differently in your way you can make it work and that's where like i just love exploring this like specific subgenre of like telling this similar story but in different ways and like why i like having the neon demon and starry eyes because like they do it just so differently there's so different experiences and like and if i was gonna recommend one or the other to somebody i would recommend starry eyes as well like it's a it's a, you know, I think objectively tighter film from like a narrative and like filmmaking standpoint. However, it's like, and I also know not everybody likes Nicholas Winding Refn's type shit. I get that. That is 100% my type of shit. So I love it. And I kind of had to rewatch it a lot more times to kind of find the story in it. And then I kind of grew more of an appreciation for it the more I watch it. And then, you know, but then also just treating it differently. There's another film that like kind of explores this kind of similar idea called Always Shine and it stars uh, Mackenzie Davis. And um, it's it's even simpler than this. Like if you like this and you want to go even more grounded and simple, then check that one out. It's about like two best friends who one of them uh, isn't doing as well, but because she like is like being a little bit more picky with like her roles and stuff versus her friend is like getting famous, but she's doing like stuff that she doesn't really like doing. And then it's like their ideologies like clashing together. And then it's like, so it's like even more simple. And it, again, it's like, you can compare it to these two films, but then it does that this similar theme of ambition just in another completely different way. And like, that's why I love exploring about it. Nice. Yeah, I'll definitely have to uh, add that to my watch list and check that out. But uh before we wrap up, were there uh, any scenes that stood out to you that we kind of glossed over? I mean, there's, again, this is in talking with you about it, like I'm dying to revisit this movie just to pick up on little things that I absolutely missed the first time. And I, now knowing obviously the conclusion, I'd probably grow a greater appreciation on a rewatch, but uh, were there any particular moments that we kind of glossed over? Yeah, um, I mean, I got a shout out Pat Healy from Cheap Thrills. He's in a lot of uh, like independent horror, a lot of like the mumblecore horror type films. And he plays her boss at Big Taters. Um, he he like really sells that role as well. You know, I've seen that boss before and he's just always great whenever he pops up in films. So always gotta shout him out. 
and then um the scene that is like interesting that like also like you know me personally have kind of had these like similar experiences like the party whenever um they're having a party you know with her friends and she's like still getting over this like weird experience that she had you know and then she decides to do some drugs and they do some molly or some acid i forget which one it was but either way it has like just like very similar like things and like even the way that they shot it in like kind of the slow motion with certain things and the way they frame certain stuff and like kind of put her in the mindset and i guess like that's the only thing that can be like argue it in the film that is like what led her to you know go back to the producer to give herself over so it's like that's like debatably but then it's like but me someone who's been on that kind of role before knows that that's what you're you know it taps into those primal instincts and again it's like you know just amplifying what's already there again so it's like you know even even that is like an interesting scene where we kind of get some character work like with the the guy best friend as well who is like you know kind of on her side kind of not he's like that friend that just like says whatever he needs to say to whoever to make them happy you know so it's like i i do appreciate that party scene um because like right at the at the before she like takes the drugs and stuff and it's like right when she like came back from um the first time meeting the producer and homegirl uh slips by the pool and busts her face <laughs> yeah. and then sarah starts laughing at her and like that's like another first glimpse that she's like kind of changing a little bit I always love that scene for some reason it makes me laugh like every time like her reaction is just so good like in the editing the way that they timed it and everything it's um it's, it's really funny so like, I, I always shout out like that that like portion of the scene film because like it could feel slow and and I would say that is debatably where the film slows down a little bit but at the same time it's still important for this character stuff again if they wanted to go the easy way they could have trimmed this movie down to 85 minutes but they didn't they they took their time like impeccably paced um yeah so those would be the only other things i wanted to shout out yeah absolutely i agree with all of that and i think that that moment where she laughs at her fr- at well air quotes her friend i don't know how actually friendly they are but when she laughs at her busting her face at the pool and she just laughs like she had nothing to do with that i think it's an interesting contrast to the fact that like those girls were making fun of her well, essentially they're making fun of her like when she doesn't get roles or they're trying to embarrass her in front of their friends and being like hey you haven't gotten that role or that role doesn't really matter that's not going to amount to anything it's again interesting that like yeah there's people that are shitty to her and instead of being shitty back she's like laughing at the fact that like this chick has t- completely smashed her face and potentially like affecting her that girl's career like who knows yeah. like just because of the way that hollywood is uh it prioritizes characteristics in, in female or male leads or uh actors for that matter like it's just very interesting the again the the levels in terms of the extremes right low lows and highs mm-hmm. in terms of extremes and i just love the contrasting of that and thinking like hey not only is that a moment where we're starting to see her true self come out but like thinking about it it's like even if somebody was shitty to me at a party or whatever, and then they smash the fuck out of their face where their potentially like nose and everything is just destroyed. 
I don't know my first reaction would be to laugh. I'd probably be like, oh shit. And then later when I'm with my buddies, oh, remember that dickhead, he smashed his face kind of thing. It's, it's just interesting, again, the way that they contrast it. And like you said, they could have cut that film down even more a little bit. And yet I would fear that moments like that that stand out to us once we've seen the film would have been lost and yet and then if that were the case i don't know if i'd be as eager to revisit just to kind of like pick up on those little moments find the deeper significance in those things um for me the only thing that we that i skipped over was the scene when she basically has an anxiety attack reading her lines during a nightmare that she's having and that is such a fantastic sequence because obviously she's trying to read her lines and she's not doing a good job she looks down the words start changing and they start moving around and it basically mirrors like dyslexia to a certain extent. And then the lines are completely gone at a certain point. And then of course mm-hmm. she's kind of f- tries to find her bearings and then she just starts bleeding all over the page from a head wound that came out of nowhere. That is a fantastic portrayal of just like a nightmare sequence in a horror film, because generally I feel like nightmare sequences, they are always the extreme, right? They're always, yeah something horrific somebody runs into Mm -hmm. the audition room and stabs her to death or a monster comes in or something (laughs) whereas this is it is very much something minus the head wound that comes out of nowhere like that portrayal of anxiety or dyslexia to a certain extent is very grounded and again that is indicative of the type of nightmares that like i have where it's normal situations and something very subtle but very unnatural happens and it completely throws up throws off whatever situation i'm in and it embarrasses me or this or that and yeah i just i love that depiction of a very grounded nightmare in reality but then there's like a little twist of the supernatural that ultimately makes it that much more disturbing yeah it, I, I love how you said that yeah dream sequences it's like usually dream sequences usually only exist to have some cheap jump scares and to show something crazy you know, but it not be real or and not implicate the film. But yet this dream sequence is specifically for character work. This is in with the story. This has emotional ties. And like and like that scene is so relatable to, you know, any actor. I, I specifically recommend this to my actor friends. Anytime they're like, hey, what's a random horror movie you want me to watch? I'm like, watch Starry Eyes. Like I always recommend this to actor people. And then that's the first scene that they always come back with is, oh my gosh, like the most tense I was was when she was having to try to read the lines and start bleeding. I was like, yeah, because it's real, you know, but then, you know, just the, the little slight, slight horror twist to it. And, you know, it's subtle restraint. Like, I mean, they, they really had great restraint on this film. It could have went off the rails. It could have gotten wild, but they, they kept it in, they kept focus and it's, it's a really good tight, hour like 40 minutes hour 43 or something like that yeah yeah absolutely i couldn't have said any better myself but uh in wrapping up i'd like to give you a minute to kind of just plug anything that you got going on yeah thank you for having me on like i said it's uh, always nice to be on the other side and i can just sit here and ramble about like whatever and uh, i love this film so much so um i do host my own horror podcast called bloody blunt cinema club and uh jay will be guesting on there at some point as well and um, it's just looking at horror through a stoner's lens. Um, I do solo episodes sometimes. Sometimes I have guests. Sometimes I have the director on. And uh, some we talk one film, two films, three films, you know. Um, but it's just tackling subgenre in general. That's what really intrigues me about uh, the horror genre in general is like specific subgenres. So um, make sure you check that podcast out. 
I have a YouTube channel as well, Bloody Blunts, where I do little shorts and uh, I have like some other like video essay type stuff come in and yeah, I do a little bit of everything. I do photography and um, I work for a media company, Beta Wave TV, that does music videos and live stream concerts. So you can find me on Twitter at underscore daddy disco. Awesome. Well, I'd love to having you on chat about Starry Eyes. This was definitely a film that I'm glad you brought up because it's one that I kind of have passed by a couple of times and this was the perfect excuse to kind of dive into that. And uh, I can't wait to be a guest on uh, your podcast in the coming months. Yeah, man. I'm glad you love the movie and I'm glad you love talking about it. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.